You know, in the late 1950s, uh, singer Eddie Cochran wrote a song that became quite famous. Uh, and the words of this song could have been Jacob's theme song. You may recognize the words. It goes like this. Well, I'm going to raise a fuss. I'm going to raise a holler by working all summer just to try to earn a dollar. Well, I went to the boss man, tried to get a break, but the boss said, no dice, son, you got to work late. And the chorus goes, sometimes I wonder, what am I going to do? Because there ain't no cure for the summertime, summertime blues. Yeah. <laughs> May not be the best song for the first day of summer. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Jacob seemed to be stuck in a dead-end job in 14 years with a boss who wasn't giving no breaks. And uh, working for Laban was pretty much 14 years of slave labor. And that's the same way, you know, many people feel about their jobs today. <laughs> Slave-like, routine, monotonous, never-ending, underpaid, exhausting, and just plain hard work. Maybe some of us have experienced that kind of work at some time in our careers as well, whether it's at the office or on the job site or even as a homemaker. Long, tiring, unexciting days of toil. You know, my own work over the years involved a lot of different jobs, uh, pumping gas, in-home cleaning, loading and fueling aircraft, commercial trolling, construction surveying, regulating land development, and pastoring a church. <laughs> and some of those jobs were interesting and challenging, like my current one. Others were pretty routine and monotonous, though only uh, commercial trolling felt to me like slave work. You know, commercial fishing wasn't uh, the, quite the high seas adventure that I had expected. But I'm thankful for all those varied work experiences. And to borrow from another old song, you've got to take this job and love it. <laughs> well, I want to ask, though, how many of those very different jobs counted for God's kingdom? How many were holy work and how many were just fluff? Well, I want to suggest that all of those jobs can be holy work. You see, during my years of uh, growing up in my parents' home, uh, there was a small ceramic plaque that my mother very strategically placed on the wall next to the telephone. And in those days, phones were attached to the wall. And uh, so whenever I made a phone call, that plaque was there in my face. And on the plaque was written a popular little Christian poem and I now keep it above my desk at home. Maybe some of you had it in your home too. And the plaque said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know that one? Well, it was once a really popular quotation in Christian circles, but it was also a very powerful message. And that message did two things. First, it influenced generations of young people to go into gospel ministry, into missions, into church ministry and parachurch work because the message was only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Jesus will count for eternity. And it's a true statement as far as it goes, but it also set up a kind of a false dichotomy. Led many to assume that other kinds of work didn't really count. That other non-gospel related everyday kinds of work would just go up in smoke on the last day <laughs> and won't count for the kingdom of God. Well, that well-known poem contributed to kind of a false hierarchy <coughs> of occupations among God's people, where we kind of put missionaries up at the top, you know, and maybe Bible teachers and pastors, helping professionals, and maybe tradespeople, business people, 
Down at the bottom somewhere are marginal occupations, you know, stockbrokers or something. <laughs> and when we do that, the result is that we miss out on recognizing the everyday spirituality of work. And we overlook the, the sacredness of all good work. For instance, uh, we often pray for missionaries or pastors, maybe for politicians, but do we pray for real estate agents, <laughs> for carpenters and mill workers and uh, dental assistants? When was the last time you prayed for the guy who collects your garbage? <laughs> well, one thing COVID has done for us is it's got some of us praying for frontline workers, right? <laughs> but sometimes we act like there's an occupational scale of spiritual importance that and that some kinds of work don't count for eternity, and some do. But I kind of want to blow that thinking out of the water, <clears throat> because the Bible has a different perspective. Um, William Tyndale, the English, English reformer, summed it up well when he said, There is no work better than another to please God. To pour water, to wash dishes, to be a cobbler or an apostle, are all, all are one as touching the deed to please God. All good work is pleasing to God. I love the classic quote from Brother Lawrence, a 17th century monk. Spent his days ser serving over a stove in the kitchen of his monastery. And he said, it is not necessary to have great things to do. I turn my little omelet in the pan for the love of God. And that's a great way to look at our work, you know, to do it for the love of God. Now when we open our Bible to the beginning of Genesis there, we see that God himself is hard at work. You know, he's busy creating and designing and forming and fashioning and ordering and ordaining all creation. And through that great work, God creates the first humans. He calls them to be co-workers with him and caretakers of his creation. And he gives them a job. Well, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, it says... The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work, to work it and take care of it. So it's part of our, our dignity as creatures made in the likeness of God, a God who works. And so work is not a curse on us as some have thought. Manual labor didn't come about as a result of human sin. Pain and suffering did, but we were made to work. Now, I'm grateful to writer and teacher Paul Stevens for some of these insights, but he says, the Greek idea that work is unleisure and a curse has wormed its way deeply into the psyche of many God-fearing people, but it is flatly wrong and dangerously misleading. He points out that uh, the Jewish people have always known this. They have emphasized the dignity of work even for their rabbis. And in Acts chapter 18, we see the Apostle Paul supported himself with man, the manual labor of tent making. Even Jewish rabbis like him were made to learn a trade as part of their rabbinical training. And this is because the Jews recognized the importance and dignity of work and working to make a living. Now, of course, we all know the joke about pastors who only have to work one day a week, right? <laughs> As they say, six days of the week invisible and the seventh day incomprehensible. <laughs> well, Jacob is the first worker in the Bible, at least the first person to have his work described in, in detail in all of its complexities and frustrations and satisfactions. His is a real, 
down-to-earth story that reveals a spirituality for the, for the road and for the workplace rather than the sanctuary. And his story shows the surprising participation of God who works with Jacob, even in the messiest and most menial of work. Jacob's work and our work are really a part of our, our journey to God. Our work is blessed by God, and it can be a ministry both to God and to others, whether we're pumping gas or pounding nails or designing software or selling hardware, changing light bulbs or changing diapers, or tending and feeding a flock. Metaphorically, my job is like Jacob's, shepherding. Well, Jacob, as you recall, arrived in Paddan Aram. He was penniless. He was running for his life from his brother and longing for a wife, the beautiful Rachel. But he has nothing to give for her except his hard work. And so he works for seven years of slave labor with no pay, looking after her father Laban's flocks. But then, you know, Laban turns the tables, deceives him, turns it into 14 years and another wife. <laughs> and later on in Genesis 31, verse 40, Jacob describes his working conditions. He says, this is my situation. The heat consumed me in the daytime, the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. And he goes on to speak about his hardship and the toil of his hands. And yet, in Genesis 29, and verse 20, it says, so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. You know, love can transform even slave work into love work. Hard work can become a labor of love. And love can turn all sorts of work into ministry. You know, God receives and accepts all honest work, not just a preaching and church-related work, the stuff we usually call ministry. God honors all good work. You know, in Jesus' parable of the last days in Matthew 25, he, he elevates the most basic work. He says, in effect, you gave me something to eat, you gave me something to drink, you invited me in, you clothed me, you looked after me, you came to visit me. And he says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Very basic work and service became ministry to God. Love transforms work into ministry. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, the Apostle Paul thanks the Thessalonians for their labor prompted by love. And work that's done in love becomes something godly. And I actually see a lot of it going on in this church, you know, people selflessly giving and serving and helping one another, and that's awesome. It's a labor prompted by love. Well, after 14 years of Jacob's labor of love, his time was completed, and about that time, his beloved life, wife, Rachel, finally bears him a son, Joseph. He's paid off the bride price for Rachel and Leah, and he's served Laban faithfully. And now Jacob wants to do something for his own family, instead of just for Laban. He wants to work for wages and get himself a little nest egg, you know, so he can return to his homeland with his family. Now Laban knows it's Jacob's labor that has brought him all this prosperity and doesn't want Jacob to leave, but neither does he want to start paying him, <laughs> even though he said to Jacob in verse 28, name your wages and I will pay them. But what follows is some really shrewd dealing on the part 
of Jacob. Seems as though Jacob here is asking for next to nothing from Laban. He'll only take the newborn spotted and speckled sheep and goats as pay, and there were very few of those in the flock. But he's cleverly turning the tables here on Laban. And God's turning the tables too. So listen to what happens in verses 34 to 43. Agreed, said Laban, let it be as you have said. The same day he, that's Laban, removed all the male goats that were streaked or spotted and all the speckled or spotted female goats and all that had white on them and all the dark colored lambs and he placed them in the care of his sons. And then he put a three-day journey between himself and Jacob while Jacob continued to tend the rest of Jake Laban's flocks. Jacob, however, took fresh-cut branches from poplar, almond, and plane trees and made white stripes on them by peeling the bark and exposing the white inner wood of the branches. And then he placed the peeled branches in all the watering troughs so that they would be directly in front of the flocks when they came to drink. And when the flocks were in heat and came to drink, they made it in front of the branches. And they bore young that were streaked, speckled, or spotted. Jacob set apart the young of the flock by themselves, but made the rest face the streaked and dark-colored animals that belonged to Laban. Thus he made separate flocks for himself and did not put them with Laban's animals. Whenever the stronger females were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones to Jacob. And in this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. <laughs> so Jacob has noticed here that Laban's sheep are mostly all white and his goats are mostly all black and the multicolored ones are very few. And essentially he says to Laban, you keep all of the existing flocks and I'll take only the future mixed color ones yet to be born. And so Laban agrees. And then he takes those few multicolored ones that were there and he removes them three days journey away from Jacob and gives them to his sons. So effectively, Laban has everything. And Jacob's left only with the care of Laban's black and white flocks, seemingly with no chance of breeding any mixed color animals for himself. Now Jacob didn't have a scientific understanding of genetics you know, and how recessive genes emerge in future generations. But his shepherding experience taught him something about selective breeding. And he found ways to arrange for the mating of the stronger animals that had the recessive genes. And when the multicolored young ones were born to the stronger animals, he set them apart as his own flock, thus building a superior flock. And Laban couldn't say <laughs> that he cheated or stolen anything. Oh, the bit about the peeled branches and white striped wood in the watering troughs? <laughs> well, Bible commentators had a lot of fun with that and lots of theories about it. But there were some age-old beliefs that sensory impressions at the moment of conception could affect the embryo. And so the peeled branches and the stripes of white and dark wood in the mating place may have been thought to impart spots and stripes to the offspring in that way. But you know, like those mandrakes that Rachel thought would make her fertile, the branches really didn't do anything. You know, Jacob became prosperous because of God's sovereign grace and simple selective breeding. 
not because of any pagan magic. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 31, Jacob tells his wives, Rachel and Leah, the inside story on this whole thing. So listen to verses 1 to 13 from chapter 31. So Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all his wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, I, don't, I see that your father's attitude toward me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, and yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. If he said, the speckled ones will be your wages, then all the flocks gave birth to speckled young. And if he said, the streaked ones will be your wages, then all the flocks bore streaked young. So God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, or spotted. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, here I am. And he said, look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, and where you made a vow to me. Now, leave this land at once and go back to your native land. Well, the inside story here is that, Jacob, that God had given Jacob another dream. We don't find out about it till now. Remember that first dream was back when he was at Bethel there with angels and a stairway from heaven? Well, his second dream revealed that God had seen all that Laban had been doing to Jacob. And the dream revealed to Jacob a word of knowledge, that the multicolored animals would be the ones to greatly multiply. And so Jacob's success didn't come from magic or manipulation. It came from the faithful hand of God. And Jacob's scheme works here because of God's sovereign grace, not because of superstition or technique or even Jacob's cleverness. And with that dream, Jacob has now remembered his promised destiny as a blessed and chosen person, the promise of God to him. And so now Jacob acts on that promise there, and he decides he won't depend on Laban for payment. Instead, he'll just trust God and trust in God's sovereign grace. And God honors his faith. So through 14 years of slave labor, and God had actually been building Jacob's household. He's got 11 sons and one daughter. And now, over a further six years, God has been building up his wealth. A total of 20 years' exile, in Paddan Aram, 20 years of hard work that actually humbled Jacob, brought him to a place of faith, and now Jacob's ready to return home. A changed man. He's a different person. You know, like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, Jacob took his inheritance, the birthright and the blessing, in advance through his selfish manipulating. And he went to the far country where he suffered, but finally came to himself and decided to return home to his father's house. I think that could describe some of our lives too. 
So Jacob's 20 years of working in the wilderness didn't really look like God work. It looked more like hard, messy animal husbandry in the desert. He wasn't prophesying or writing scripture or leading God's people. Doesn't look very holy. But God was doing something through it of eternal significance. Something that would last for all time, fulfilling God's great promises. And you know, God can do something like that in our work too. He can use it. What makes our work to be God-blessed is not that it looks religious or that God's word and his name are proclaimed aloud, but that that work is offered to God in faith and love. But that the work is offered in faith and love. Even slave work sometimes. You know, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So whether you're done working or you're still working, um, what is it that makes your work to be of lasting significance? It's not because of any religious label on your work, but that it's done for the love of Christ and for others whatever good work that might be or have been. So that little poem there is certainly true. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. But all good work can be done, can be God's work done for Christ. Not by virtue of its religious nature, but because it's done in love and faith. And for that reason, it becomes linked to God's kingdom and to God's promise and to God's purpose and to God himself. So Jacob's life is actually a lesson for us, but you know Jesus is our model, right? I mean, Jacob fled into the wilderness with nothing and through God's blessing and grace became rich. But Jesus had everything. He was rich. And yet he emptied himself, left behind all his riches in heaven, and he did it all for us. Jesus went into the wilderness, this sinful world, with nothing. And there he faced all the temptations and trials of life on earth. All without resorting to deceit or manipulation. At the cross, his greatest work, he took the penalty for our sin and our deceit. And he did the greatest work of all. Why did he do it? Well, he'd done it for love. So that lost wanderers like Jacob and like you and like me might be forgiven and have life in all of its significance and fullness. Praise be to God. Amen.